Chapter Two of the Smoke Eaters by Harvey J. O'Higgins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Charge of Cowardice. Captain Meaghan, running with a tossing lantern down the pier, at the head of his company, met Battalion Chief Tighe coming in the opposite direction. Tighe shouted, Get off the hatch! Powder and oil aboard! and passed like a flying shadow of himself through the mist into the darkness. And that was all the information that Captain Meaghan got of the cargo that was smouldering in the Phoebe. He leaped over the bulwarks of the deserted boat, a three-masted sailing-vessel, bark-rigged, to find smoke curling up from the covering of the after-hatchway. There was no other sign of fire to be seen. "'Get her off, boys!' he cried and the men attacked the hatch with their hooks and axes. He looked about him for his lieutenant. "'Gallagher!' he called. He got no reply. "'Where's Gallagher?' he cried, and there was no answer. Now Lieutenant Gallagher, at that moment, was coming at the double down the pier, having been delayed at the truck by the third officer of the Phoebe, who had been standing on the curbstone of the street excitedly warning the fireman that there was powder aboard. He had fastened on Gallagher when he heard the lieutenant giving orders there, and Gallagher, having learned in unnecessary detail that the boat was loading with miscellaneous consignments of general merchandise, cartridges and kerosene, that the explosives were in the upper hold aft, and the general merchandise below them, that the oil was being put well forward, and was therefore not yet afire had darted across the foggy street that was swarming now with police and firemen, and echoing with a hubbub of officers' voices, the whistles and bells of fire apparatus, and the clatter of horses' hoofs. Just as he reached the other side of the road, Battalion Chief Tighe had rushed out at him from the pier, had swerved to avoid him, tripped over the curb, and fallen heavily on the paving-stones. Gallagher had stopped and run back to find another fireman raising the unconscious chief, and then, without waiting to aid, he had turned again and raced down the pier, eager to rejoin his company, so that Captain Meaghan might not have any smallest excuse for finding fault with him. They had not been getting on smoothly together. Captain Meaghan was of the old school, gruff and unlettered. The lieutenant, though he was a black and burly man, was as neat as a barber in his person, and officially careful in his speech. He had stood high on his civil service examination for promotion to a lieutenancy, and he knew it was the captain's opinion that a civil service examination for a fireman was as absurd as a preacher's license for a harbour pilot. He came breathless to the side of the Phoebe, while Captain Meaghan was still standing on the bulwarks above his men, giving them the light of his lantern on their work. The smoke was bursting through the broken hatch at every blow of the axes. "'Get it off, boys, get it off!' Meaghan coached them. He turned anxiously to look for the return of Tighe, since, in the absence of the battalion chief, he must rank in charge of a fire of which he knew nothing, and he saw his lieutenant. "'Tom!' he cried to Long Tom Donnelly. "'Go back and get a twelve-foot ladder!' Gallagher he greeted his assistant gruffly. When the hatch is off, get out that powder and throw it overboard. He had understood, from Tighe's brief directions to him, that the oil was burning below the powder, and he knew that to flood the boat, in such conditions, would be to float the flame up to the explosives. 
Gallagher put down his lantern and went back to the bulwarks. He supposed that Captain Meaghan was afraid the engine company would be slow in coming up. He pointed to a squad of men dragging a line of hose through the misty circle of an electric light. "'Here,' he said. "'Here they are now!' Meaghan cried. "'Eh? What? What's that?' "'Here's an engine company now,' Gallagher repeated. "'Well, supposin' it is.' The lieutenant did not understand his tone. "'Can't they flood it out quicker?' "'What's that?' Meaghan shouted. Gallagher continued in his error. "'Can't we flood it out? Do you need to risk the men?' Meaghan jumped down at him. "'By God!' he said. "'Are you scared?' and raised the lantern on him. He had been wondering why Gallagher had hung behind the men. The hatch crashed and fell beneath the axes. "'She's loaded deep,' Gallagher explained, confusedly, blinking at the light. We can sink her in no time, and the fireboats'll be here to help. What's the use?" "'What's the use?' Gallagher stormed. "'Afraid of your skin, are you? You're a fireman, eh?' he cursed in a fury of contempt. "'Boys!' he cried to the men. Gallagher put a hand on his arm. "'Look here, sir,' he said thickly. Meaghan shook him off. "'Boys!' he shouted. "'He's a-scared to lead you down that hatch.' He threw the light on Gallagher. The crew stared at him from the hatchway. The men of an engine company on the wharf shouldered to the bulwarks, asking, "'What's up? What's the matter?' Long Tom Donnelly pushed his way through them with the twelve-foot ladder. "'It's a lie,' Gallagher broke out. "'I say, what's the use of risking your men when you can—' Meaghan drowned his voice in the bellow of a maddened beast. "'You take your orders from me, do you hear?' Lead the men down that ladder, or I'll have you broke for the oil-headed, bandy-legged coward you are." Gallagher threw out a passionate hand at him. "'I'm just that much a coward,' he cried, "'that you can't scare me with any threat of getting me broke. I'd be a damn sight worse coward if I'd be scared into leading men where they shouldn't ought to have to go.' Meaghan turned to the men. "'You hear that, Pim? Hear that, Donnelly? I want you for witnesses. Now, he said, fiercely to Gallagher, get to hell out of this. Gallagher did not move. Meaghan swung his lantern to the engine company on the pier. Volunteers, he called. I want eight men to bring up this powder. There were twenty men shoving forward before the words were well out of his mouth, but his own crew were first. They lowered the ladder into the smoking hatch, and in the crowding and confusion that followed, Gallagher slid down into the hold, unobserved by the captain. Sergeant Pym, Parr, and Long Tom Donnelly went after him. He began to pass the cases of cartridges to Parr at the foot of the ladder. From him they were handed to Pym and Donnelly on the rungs, and from Donnelly they reached the deck to go from man to man and overboard with a splash. They worked with the quiet regularity of a trained bucket brigade. Gallagher stopped only once, to tie a handkerchief over his mouth. The other men had better air, the engine company aiding them with the shower of a spray nozzle, which fought back the smoke. Nevertheless, Parr had to be relieved, and three fresh men were sent down to fill the gap that was made in the chain, as Gallagher moved farther and farther into the hold. There were exactly two hundred and forty-six packages of explosives in the cargo and Gallagher, while he toiled over them with bruised hands, 
half-stifled and maddened by the heat, cursed the stupidity of the captain who had set him the task of taking them out. For himself his world had come to an end. He had been held up to his crew as a coward, and he would be dismissed from the department for insubordination. That scene on the deck of the Phoebe, of him standing in the light of the captain's lantern, his men eyeing him from the shadow, and Megan crying out to them, "'Boys, he's a scared to lead you down that hatch!' possessed him in the darkness like a delirium. He went over his arguments as he worked. He protested against the injustice of the captain's charge. He fought against the folly of the captain's orders. But the shame of it all persisted, the light of the lantern was an eye of flaming contempt on him, and Megan's great voice rang out his infamy with a coward, coward, that was a bell booming in his ears. He struggled with the cases of cartridges, muttering to himself, sick and dizzy. And every minute that he worked was a minute wasted. That was apparent now to Battalion Chief Tighe, who had come back to the boat with his head bandaged, and who was storming about on the deck above, ordering squad after squad down the ladder to aid and relieve those below. It was impossible to turn a full stream into the burning vessel while the men were in the hold. It was equally impossible to recall them and attempt a redistribution for a new attack. For the fire had gained such headway that it could not be drowned out now before it would reach the explosives. It was plain, from the lightness of the smoke, that the merchandise was afire, and not the oil. And Tighe, chafing at the situation, censured Megan for his misjudgment in a volley of oaths that drove the old captain, smarting and humiliated, into the file with his men, to work there like a private, passing cartridges across the deck. The crew of a hook-and-ladder truck were opening the forward hatch. A second crew had been ordered into the captain's saloon to open the hold from the stern. Line after line of hose had been laid along the pier. The New Yorker had come up whistling through the fog, and was fighting with a wrecking-tug to get alongside the Phoebe. Everything was ready, everything seemed to pause and take breath, for the attack that should drown the fire in a deluge from a score of pipes. And then suddenly, from the bow of a boat, came a cry of alarm. A spurt of flame shot up a ruddy reflection on a burst of smoke. The thud of a small explosion shook the decks. There was a ringing shout of, "'Oil's afire! Oil's afire!' And a second can burst like a bomb. Tige roared, "'Get the men out! All ashore!' And the firemen, who had swarmed like pirates from peak to poop, went over the sides to the wharf as if from a sinking ship. At the first sign of danger, Captain Meaghan had dropped into the after-hatch, and called to the men there to save themselves. Four dashed up the ladder from the smoke, but the smothered voice of Gallagher cried back to him, "'There's only three cases!' And Meaghan groped his way forward to see Sergeant Pym and the lieutenant getting out the last packages by the light of a dim lantern. The captain shouted, "'Oil's loose!' Pym took a case of cartridges and ran to the ladder with it. Before he could get back, the flames burst in on Gallagher in a gush of burning kerosene that lit up the hold like a bonfire in a cave. Megan sprang to his lieutenant's aid. Gallagher passed him a box. He hurried back with it to Pym. The sergeant caught it from him and started up the ladder. 
and Meaghan turned to see Gallagher staggering from the flames, with the last package of explosives in his hands, and the burning oil blazing around his feet. The report behind the lieutenant filled the air with fire and threw him forward. Meaghan caught him as he fell, and dragged him to the ladder. There, having passed the case of cartridges to Pym, he raised the unconscious Gallagher to his shoulders and climbed heavily to the deck. But quick as they had been, the fire had been quicker. From the forward hatch the flames had leaped into the shrouds and the rigging, and from there had reached the ten-gallon tins of oil, lying, ready for loading, on the pier. The heat of midsummer had dried the planks of the wharf, and they flared up with the oil like a laid fire. On the other side of the pier, and nearer the street, a tramp-freighter from the southern coast had been discharging a carton of cotton and when Meaghan reached the deck a pile of these cotton bales was blazing, and the pier between him and the shore seemed to be flaming in a smother of smoke. He could see the men running and shouting hither and thither in the road. The fireboat had backed away from the Phoebe and had trained its big monitor on the bales and the oil-cans, and the powerful stream scattered and swept them across the pier in a torrent. It was impossible to run that gauntlet of smoke, fire, and water, and Meaghan knew it. He laid Gallagher on the deck, stripped the smoking outer clothing off him, tore the handkerchief from his mouth, and began to fan air into his lungs with his helmet. It was air as hot as the stifle of an oven. "'We can't spend the night here, I guess,' Pym said, as he tossed the last box of powder overboard. "'Take him up on the poop-deck,' Meaghan replied. A choking cloud blew over them from the glow in the after-hatch. They carried Gallagher up the companion-ladder to stretch him out beside the skylight of the saloon, and they were met there by three firemen who had been cut off at their work in the stern, and who came groping up the stairs from the saloon to the poop-deck to ask, "'What's up, eh? What's up?' "'All hell's up,' Pym said. "'We'll have to swim out, I guess.' Meaghan looked around him. Where's that wrecking-tug?" They were shut off from the sight of shore now, by the thick smoke that rolled up like the belch of a liner's stack, shot with flames at its base, a burning curtain of smoke from which a furnace-heat was blown in scorching puffs into their faces. They could hear only that pulse of indistinguishable noises, the roar and crackle of fire, the hiss of water, and the throbbing of steam-pumps which shakes the air in a dull tremble that deafens the ear as a too great glare of light blinds the eye. Behind them a glowing haze of smoke and fog hung down to the water. "'The New Yorker ought to be over there,' one of the firemen said. They planned to swim to her. Meaghan said, "'Get me some water, Pim,' and began to work over the limp body of his lieutenant. The glass in the saloon skylight cracked and fell tinkling smoke began to curl up through the vents. "'Gettin' too hot for me,' a fireman said, kicking off his rubber boots. "'Me too,' another agreed, following his example. The third stripped to his underclothing and walked aft. And then Pym, at the rail, yelled hoarsely, "'Oil's afloat! We're cut off from the fireboat!' And the three men, knowing that if they delayed until the burning oil surrounded them, they would be beyond hope, ran to the stern and dived overboard. Pym threw off his coat. He and Captain Meaghan dragged Gallagher to the taffrail, 
they tore loose a life-boy that hung there they leaped with the unconscious man into the water the shock and coolness brought the lieutenant to his senses he came up choking and spitting with meaghan's fingers twisted in his collar and he splashed and beat the water wildly with his hands pym thrust the boy at him get a hold of that he shouted and gallagher clung to it the captain had been compelled to jump overboard with his boots on and for a time he was busy trying to get free of them while pym kept him afloat where am i gallagher gasped you're in the bay pym answered can you swim yes gallagher said well kick out then pym advised him there's considerable warm oil coming this way he added we'd better get out as far as we can cross the current oil'll be loose in the other slip there meaghan having rid himself of his boots breasted a small wave with a long stroke and pym and gallagher struck out beside him the lieutenant pushing the life-boy ahead of him as he swam he was trying to recollect what had happened to him but he did not waste his breath in asking questions he was weak and the water splashed up irritatingly in his face they swam in silence there ought to be some some tugs round here meaghan said at last pym raised his shoulders treading water and stretched his neck ship ahoy he shouted voices answered out of the mist to their right that's them three swimming down the piers he said meaghan turned on his side and swam in that direction and the others followed him borne along on the tide gallagher had come upon a confused recollection of his quarrel with his captain and he paused to frown at the glare of the fire behind him when he looked around again a little wave struck him smartly in the face to remind him of present things and he coughed the salt water from a throat and nostrils that were already sensitive with heat and smoke pym growled sympathetically we've been smoked we'll be pickled now gallagher did not reply he speculated on the back of meaghan's head bobbing before him in the water and he wondered what the thought was under that matted grey hair for himself he felt as if he had been wakened from a bad dream by the cold water had been wakened to a world of new efforts and new opportunities of which a man might take advantage regardless of the past gallagher was an optimist he shook the memory of that charge of cowardice from his thought with a toss of his head and breasted forward they had been swimming for what seemed to him an eternity of fog and splashing water with the boats of the east river blinded and peevish in the thickness of the july night lowing and complaining to one another forlornly in the faint distance when he heard the throb of marine engines somewhere to their left almost at the same instant meaghan raised himself and roared halloo halloo there in a voice like the blast of a foghorn gallagher caught the low pinhole gleam of a red port light it's a tug he said all aboard pym shouted they wheeled into line toward the boat which began to show at the foot of the haze ship ahoy man overboard pym cried all right meaghan said they're comin the green light showed beside the red as the tug bore down on them they could see a man in the bows and they yelled a warning to him not to run them down the hemp fendered nose of the boat was not three yards from them when it stopped 
A moment later Gallagher had caught the rope end and, with the assistance of Pym and Meaghan, had climbed up the low side to the deck, to find himself weak in the knees and top-heavy. He leaned over the side to give a hand to his captain, and Meaghan made a sound in his throat that might have been intended for a gruff and unmollified thanks. Pym came up the rope hand over hand, and Gallagher turned away to dance the water out of his ears and to frown to himself at Meaghan's manner, for it was a manner that brought all his troubles back on him, the heavier for the unreasoning interval of relief. The captain of the tug, McVicker was his name, took a clay pipe from his hairy lips to ask them impolitely where they had come from. Gallagher looked up, but did not answer. Meaghan took no heed whatever. Pym nodded his head in the direction of the fire, and continued to wring water from the legs of his trousers. "'Blamed pants done for,' he complained, with the resentment of a man who has to buy his own uniform. "'What's a fire?' McVicker asked impatiently. "'Everything in sight,' Pym said. "'Any boats?' "'Ought to be. Oil's afloat.' McVicker saw a prospect of salvage money. "'Full ahead!' he shouted to the engineer, who was leaning from the window of the engine-room. The tug shot forward on the kick of the screw. It had not gone ten yards before there was a far call from the water, and Meaghan turned to see the three remaining firemen swimming toward them. "'Hold on! Hold on! Pick up those men!' he cried. The tug captain looked around to ask, "'Who's running this boat?' Now, if either Gallagher or Meaghan had been asked that question in the tone of mere inquiry, it would have taken them an appreciable time to make an answer to it, for they were as slow of mind and as slow of speech as all men whose lives are spent in action, not in thought. But what Gallagher heard was not the words, but the tone of insolent defiance in which they were spoken. And before a man of thought, unaccustomed to action, could have made up his mind that McVicker intended to abandon the three firemen struggling in the water, or, at best, before such a man could have begun to decide what to do to make the captain and the tug wait to rescue the swimmers, Gallagher had flung himself on McVicker and gripped him by the throat. He knew that McVicker had a tugboat crew of at least five, but he was full of a dumb resentment against Meaghan, and he was hungering for a fight. He throttled McVicker, backing him to the bulwarks, tripped him as he staggered, and dealt him a blow that broke his clay pipe in his teeth, and toppled him overboard as he fell. He struck the water with a wild yell and went under. "'Look out for the mate!' Meaghan shouted, and closed with a burly deckhand. Pym and Gallagher grappled with the mate, and wrested a revolver from him. "'Over he goes!' Pym grunted putting in a body-blow that doubled the man up. They threw him, writhing, across the bulwarks, then heaved him over, head first. Before his shrill cries had time to grow faint in the wake of the tug, Meaghan, leaving the deckhand lying unconscious, with his head against the housework, ran forward to the wheelhouse. "'The engineer!' he cried, as he went by. Pym and the lieutenant charged down on the engine-room. The boat made a wide circuit in the water, running like a chicken without its head. Then it shivered and stopped short. Meaghan came out of the wheelhouse, wiping his mouth with the back of a bleeding hand. He nodded to Gallagher, who joined him from the engine-room. "'All right,' he said. 
I guess she'll wait to pick them up now. She waited, rocking gently in the fog, with the three firemen standing in a little circle, back to back amidships. Gallagher was facing the engine room with the mate's revolver in his hand. Captain Meaghan was watching the wheelsmen in the bows. Pym was standing with a coil of rope, ready for Captain McVicker and his mate, who were swimming up together. "'Hold on to that,' he said, tossing the rope-end out to them. "'And don't try to come aboard till I say the word, or I'll step on your face.' "'You'll get thirty days for this,' McVicker screamed. "'You dirty river pirates!' Pym laughed. "'Whoop her up!' he called to the three firemen, who were swimming feebly toward them. "'We can't keep this ocean liner waiting all night for you!' When they had the three men aboard, they left the engineer and the wheelsman to assist the captain and the mate over the side, and went forward to the bows, regardless of the curses of McVicker and the abuse of the mate. "'Better take this, sir,' Gallagher said, apologetically, to Meaghan, handing him the revolver. "'No, I don't want it. I don't want it,' Meaghan said, and turned away from him to watch the fire grow and brighten as the tug swung round again and cut through the water toward it. McVicker shouted from a safe distance, "'I'll fix you!' They did not reply. The men, feeling the constraint of Meaghan's ill-temper, drew away from the two officers and sat down on the sides of the boat. Gallagher waited for his foreman to speak. There had always been an unfortunate silence between them, and now, to the lieutenant's misunderstanding of his captain, it was the silence of the most implacable anger of an unreasonable old man. "'Oil hasn't spread,' Meaghan growled at last. "'Fireboat's keeping it back, I guess,' Gallagher replied curtly from his experience, knowing how those vessels would sweep the water with their streams, and brush back and round up the burning oil until it burned itself out. "'I guess,' Meaghan agreed, and returned to his moody silence. They could see, across the flame-lit water, a fleet of tugs crowding on the starboard quarter of the southern freighter that had been lying on the other side of the Phoebe's pier. She was burning in her upper works. The tugs had lines aboard her, and were dragging her out, stern first, into midstream. Meaghan turned. Did you know where the oil was? Gallagher frowned. Of course, he said in a puzzled tone. One of the mates told me. Meaghan muttered a disgusted curse on his own stupidity and looked away. Gallagher stared at him. "'Why,' he said, "'I thought—I thought you knew.' The captain shook his head. He replied in a moment, "'Tig didn't tell me.' There followed a laboriously thoughtful silence for Gallagher. He said at last, fervently, "'Hell!' It was his apology and the captain accepted it without a word, dumb and dispirited, and gazing blankly at the swarm of tugs fighting around the freighter. But when Pym called out, "'There's the New Yorker! We could get aboard her!' Meaghan spun around and shouted savagely, "'Tell him to shove the tug in alongside her, or, by God, we'll tip the whole damn crew of em into the drink again!' They found it easy to get transferred to the fireboat, but impossible to get ashore from her until the fire had been put out. And when they finally reported to Battalion Chief Tighe for duty, there was nothing for them to do. He looked them over with a mildly threatening eye. "'Get back to your house and get dried,' he said. 
Take my rig. I'll come up on the truck. He added, to Gallagher and the captain, I want to see you two. And he saw them, and he heard them, through an hour-long conference that kept the crew hushed in awful expectation in their bunk-room on the other side of Megan's office door. Pym refused to answer any questions for the men, and went off to sleep. But Long Tom Donnelly, with one eye open for promotion, lay waiting to be summoned as a witness of the lieutenant's insubordination, and listened to the growl of voices in the office, wakefully. When Tighe came out, at last, he was smoking one of Megan's cigars, and Donnelly, from his cot, got a glimpse of Gallagher, as the door opened, sitting at his ease beside the captain's desk, breathing the fragrant blue, and puffing at another of the old man's cheroots. And Donnelly was the only one dissatisfied with that ending of the affair. End of chapter 2